welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm okay. Don't worry, everybody. This is not COVID. This is just, this (laughs) This is is just just normal allergies. Yeah. This is just, that's the other thing. Now that like spring is coming, so many people have allergies. And so you hear someone like, And everybody just like starts shooting daggers at you. Yeah, exactly. So those of us with allergies were, (laughs) yeah, you're you're under a high high stress. It's a lot. It's a lot. But we are committed to providing you guys, our listeners, with high quality informational content while you are self-isolating in your homes, cars, bunkers, et cetera, et cetera. So (laughs) that's our promise to you. Yeah. And I I know we like to keep your spirits lifted. Yes. And like to bring lighthearted topics oh, to your door. Yes. Alas, this is not that week. <laughs> I realize that. <laughs> I will say this episode mm, is as always rated E, but this time it's rated E for extreme. What? I think what, I'd rate what, it X for what? extreme. EX for extreme. EX, yeah, okay. Yeah. We'll do that. How about that? Um, we'll make a note to Apple Podcasts or whatever. Uh, but Explicit? My explicit. Oh, that's the word. <laughs> that's the word. Um, so my episode today is called Bootykins. What? Caligula. The reason for Bootykins, I'll explain it in a second. Okay. Um, so first off, I should mention, top of the top of the show, I got a lot of this information from a documentary called Caligula with Mary Beard on BritBox. Uh, Mary Beard is a British classicist and author of several books on Roman culture and history, uh, including the fabulous sounding Laughter in Ancient Rome on Joking, Tickling, and Cracking Up. Um, she's kind of amazing. Um, she got, she's on TV every so often in England. She got a lot of like flack from the media for not having a makeover. Cause she's got like long gray hair. She looks like a middle-aged woman. Like she doesn't, yeah. she didn't get her teeth fixed. Like she's, she's a historian. Like why does she need to be glamorous? And they were like, well, she's the ugliest so one, one, um, person said that she was the ugliest woman on TV, which is like the <gasps> rudest thing. And she's, can I tell you a beautiful older woman? One. Um, and she was like, I have no interest in uh, making over myself. Like, I'm not here to be on TV. I'm here to, like, provide information and be a historian. Yeah. So Mary Beard kicks ass, one. And two, throughout the entire documentary, she's wearing gold uh, animal print high top sneakers and just, like, running all over Rome and England. Also, I do have a problem with her, though, because she really <laughs> loves to touch things in museums. Ah. Like, she was running her hands all over marble statues mm. and sticking her fingers into documents and all sorts of things you don't we don't approve of that yeah and every time she did that i would say out loud to my television mary come on like you're setting a bad precedent here but anyway she's very knowledgeable so secondly the facts and circumstances of caligula's reign are mostly lost to history so only two sources contemporary with caligula have survived the works of philo and the works of seneca um, Seneca's various works give mostly scattered anecdotes on Caligula's personality mostly. Um, and Seneca was almost put to death by Caligula in AD 39, likely due to his associations with conspirators. 
Um, at one time, there were detailed contemporaneous histories on Caligula, but they are now lost. Um, additionally, the historians who wrote them are described as biased. They are either overly critical or overly praising of mm-hmm. him. Um, nonetheless, these lost primary sources, along with the works of Seneca and Philo, were the basis of surviving secondary and tertiary histories on Caligula written by the next generations of historians. The bulk of what is known of Caligula comes from Suetonius and Cassius Dio, um, which sounds like Ronnie James Dio's brother, uh, but he is actually a Roman historian. Uh, what, what band is he from? Uh, he's just Dio is the name of oh, the band. Okay. Yeah, he's the guy who invented the rock symbol. So like the the rock Whoa. horns. Okay. This is a side information, oh, just yeah. FYI. Mm-hmm. So the rock horns, like the, you know, the, the yeah, index finger and the pinky, uh-huh. I'm going to rock, is actually, he got it from his Italian grandmother who used to give, give that symbol, which is the devil horns, uh-huh. to him as the malocchio to like, you know, you're being bad, like you're the devil. And so he thought that was badass. And so at shows, he would be like, mealy, 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 mealy. And then he'd be like, I want to rock! And then do the devil yeah. horns. Whatever, Nana. <laughs> Whatever, Nana. I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> I'm going to do what I want. I'm the devil. Uh, and so everybody started doing it. And so he's the person who started like the devil horn thing for rock and roll. Great. Is that appropriate for, <laughs> is that appropriate for, uh, for, for, this, for this episode? <clears throat> Maybe. So, um, Suetonius specifically wrote his history on Caligula 80 years after his death, while Cassius Dio wrote his history over 180 years after Caligula's death. Okay. Uh, Cassius Dio's work is invaluable because it also gives a loose chronology of Caligula's reign. That's helpful. Yeah. Um, so uh, none of these sources, however, paint Caligula in a super favorable light, we'll say. Mm-hmm. Um, the lack of sources has resulted in significant gaps in modern knowledge on the reign of Caligula, and little is written on the first two years of his reign. Additionally, there are only limited details on later significant events, such as the annexation of Mauritania, Caligula's military actions in Britannia, uh, and his feud with the Roman state. But I digress. So... Caligula, a.k.a. his real name, Gaius Julius Caesar, was born on August 31st, 12 AD, the son of the popular Roman general Germanicus and Augustus Caesar's granddaughter, Agrippina the Elder. Um, Caligula was born into the first ruling family of the Roman Empire, conventionally known as the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Um, Gaius had two older brothers, Nero and Drusus, as well as three younger sisters, Agrippina the Younger, Julia Drusilla, and Julia Lavilla. Drusilla and Agrippina. Yep. These great early ancient Roman names. Um, He was also a nephew of Claudius, who was Germanicus's younger brother and the future emperor. Okay. Um, Spoiler alert. Claudius becomes the emperor after uh, Caligula. Yes. I Claudius. Yes. So as a boy of just two or three, Gaius accompanied his father Germanicus on campaigns in the north of Germania, which is where he was stationed at the time. The soldiers were amused that Gaius was dressed in a miniature soldier's outfit, including boots and armor, like this little boy. He was soon given the nickname Caligula, meaning little soldier's boot in Latin, (laughs) after the small boots, which were known as Caligae, he wore. So they basically called him like little boots or bootykins. (laughs) So that's why... The, wow. the name of this episode is called Bootykins because wow. that was it. Um, Gaius Caligula, though, reportedly hated the nickname. Okay. Um, the fact that we still call him Caligula, though, is a testament to how his enemies had cemented his legacy in history, <laughs> um, which is what we will talk about later. 
So Agrippina the Elder, his mother, was the granddaughter of Augustus Caesar on her mother's side. And through his mother, Augustus was the maternal great-grandfather of Gaius. So the first emperor of Rome, of the Roman Empire, Augustus Caesar, was Caligula's great-grandfather. All right. Um, His great uncle and adoptive grandfather, who's known as Tiberius, would eventually become emperor in 14 AD. He was the second emperor of the Roman Empire. So while in the eastern provinces, Germanicus, his father, came into conflict with the governor of Syria, who was known as Gnaeus Calpurnius Piso. And during their feud, Germanicus became ill in Antioch, where he died on October 10th in AD 19. His death has been attributed to poison by ancient sources, but that was never proven. As a famous general, he was widely popular and regarded as the ideal Roman long after his death. And contemporary Roman historian Suetonius claims that Germanicus was poisoned in Syria by an agent of Tiberius who viewed Germanicus as a political rival. I mean, everybody was poisoning everybody back then. Oh my gosh. The Italians loved to poison. Like, oh, they love it. Can I tell you? Woo. It's bad. So after the death of his father, Caligula lived with his mother uh, until her relations with Tiberius deteriorated because mm. he maybe killed yeah, his dad. Know. And Agrippina was like not like quiet about that. So Tiberius would not allow Agrippina to remarry for fear her husband would be a rival. Um, and Agrippina and Caligula's brother Nero uh, were banished in 29 on charges of treason. Um, so in 31, Caligula was remanded to the personal care of Tiberius on Capri, where he lived for six years. So Tiberius, his great uncle, kicked his mom and his brother out, but he like kept him on, Okay, which is kind of strange. So it was like to the surprise of many, Caligula was spared by Tiberius. Um, and according to historians, Caligula was an excellent natural actor and recognizing danger hid all his resentment toward Tiberius. An observer said of Caligula, quote, never was there a better servant or a worse master. Bum, bum, bum. Bum. So Caligula claimed to have planned to kill Tiberius with a dagger to avenge his mother and brother. However, having brought the weapon into Tiberius's bedroom, he did not kill the emperor, but instead threw the dagger down on the floor. Supposedly, Tiberius knew of this, but never dared to do anything about it. And Suetonius claims that Caligula was already cruel and vicious. He writes that when Tiberius brought Caligula to Capri, his purpose was to allow Caligula to live in order that he, quote, prove the ruin of himself and of all men, and that he was rearing a viper for the Roman people and a phaethon or a demigod for the world. How old is he? So he's like 20. He's like, he's an adult, but he's young. Um, and he was already like, like a psychopath. So, (laughs) um, so in 33, Tiberius gives Caligula an honorary castorship, which is basically like a public official, Mm -hmm. um, a position he held until his rise to emperor. So he got to be in like the inner circle of the emperor, even more so politically, not just familial wise. So meanwhile, both Caligula's mother and his brother Drusus died in prison. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Caligula was briefly married to Junia Claudilla in 33, though she died in childbirth the following year. Um, Caligula spent time befriending the Praetorian prefect, who was known as Navius Sutorius Macro, an important ally. Macro spoke well of Caligula Tiberius, attempting to quell any ill will or suspicion the emperor felt toward Caligula. As a side note, the Praetorian guard, or the mm-hmm. Praetorian prefect, a person... Um, they were an elite unit of the Roman army that served as bodyguards and intelligence for the emperor. So they're like the insider military guys around the emperor. The secret service. The secret service, basically, yes. 
So when Tiberius died on March 16th, 37, his estate and the titles of the Principate, which is the whole thing, mm-hmm. uh, the Principate is the name sometimes given to the first period of the Roman Empire from the beginning of the reign of Augustus in 27, and is characterized by the reign of a single emperor who was known as a princep. Okay. Um, this, his estate and titles were left to Caligula and Tiberius's own grandson, who was known as Gemellus, who were to serve as joint heirs. Um, Although Tiberius was 77 and on his deathbed, some ancient historians still conjecture that he was murdered, as you could possibly imagine. Um, Tacitus writes, who was a historian, uh, writes that the Praetorian prefect Macro smothered Tiberius with a pillow to hasten Caligula's accession, much to the joy of the Roman people, while Suetonius writes that Caligula may have carried out the killing, though this is not recorded by any other ancient historian. So take it with a grain of salt. Um, Or sale. Uh, Seneca, <laughs> Seneca the Elder and Philo, who both wrote during the, his reign, as well as Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, um, record Tiberius as dying a natural death. So now backed by Macro, the Praetorian prefect, Caligula had Tiberius's will nullified with regards to Gemellus on grounds of insanity, um, but otherwise carried out Tiberius's wishes. So he basically got his friends to say that Gemellus, Tiberius's grandson, and the person he was supposed to share all this stuff with was too crazy to, to uh, hold up his okay. end. And then he just like kind of kicked him out, but then still like followed the will, basically. Um, so Caligula accepted the powers of the Principate as conferred by the Senate and entered Rome on March 28th amid a crowd that hailed him as, quote, our baby and, quote, our star, among other nicknames. Oh, the Romans loved him. Little Boots. Yeah, Little Boots, our baby, uh, our sweet prince. Like, they just, they loved him. Was he handsome? Um, Not particularly. And we'll get to, like, what he looked like in a second. But he, yeah, he, I think it was because his dad was so well-loved. Okay. And because he was already, like, seen as, like, Caligula, Little Boots, like, the the continuation of his father, that he was well-loved. Um, he is described as the first emperor who is admired by everyone in all the world from the rising to the setting sun. Um, as I mentioned before, he was loved because he was the son of the popular Germanicus and because he was not Tiberius. Okay. They really hated Tiberius. So they were just like, glad to have a new guy in here. Suetonius said that over 160,000 animals were sacrificed during three months of public rejoicing to usher in the new reign. That's a lot of animal sacrifice. Woo. I hope lo- they... Put that to good use. Yeah, somehow. Exactly. Um, Philo describes the first seven months of Caligula's reign as, quote, completely blissful. Excellent. Yeah, what it's a great, great start. Great start. Um, so Caligula's first acts were said to be generous in spirit, though many were political in nature, as one could imagine. Um, to gain support, he granted bonuses to the military, including the Praetorian Guard, city troops, and the army outside of Italy. He destroyed Tiberius's treason papers, declared that treason trials were a thing of the past, and recalled those who had been sent into exile. He helped those who had been harmed by the imperial tax system, banished certain sexual deviants, and put on lavish spectacles for the public, including gladiatorial games. This guy sounds great. Oh, he's great. <laughs> Everybody gets money. I think Come we're back. We're good. We're we don't s- have to. You don't even have to do anything else. You know I don't what? think. The end. <laughs> and he still reigns today. Um, so, well, you know, it it gets weird. Um, Caligula collected and brought back the bones of his mother and of his brothers and deposited their remains in the tomb of Augustus. So he made a big show of bringing back his mother and his brother's bones. 
and like interring them in this big, beautiful, um, uh, ma- like mausoleum. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mary Beard goes to the mausoleum and she reads it out loud because it's all in Latin and she reads it to us and she touches it all over. Um, but uh, essentially what the the inscription said was like, here lies Caligula's mother Agrippina. Caligula, the greatest emperor who's ever lived. The savior of Rome. This guy's mom. It, like, it's basically all about him. <laughs> it's all about him. It has her name, like, really tiny. And it's like, oh, also his brother. Um, and so it's basically this whole thing was a big show to be like, look at me. Like, remember wow. my wonderful, beautiful family that you all loved? I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to bring them back to Rome. So he knew what he was doing, okay. essentially. Now, in October of 37... Caligula fell seriously ill or perhaps was poisoned. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, put money on the poison part. Bound to happen lie. eventually. Uh, he soon, however, recovered from his illness, but many believe that the illness turned the young emperor toward the diabolical. He started to kill off or exile those who were close to him or whom he saw as a serious threat. This is the part of the Dateline thing where you have the one picture yes. that you zoom in on. Very slowly. This is the part where he turned... <laughs> Diabolical. Diabolical. Yeah, yes, exactly. And then like invert the colors. Yes. <laughs> Keith Morrison is like really growling and leaning somewhere. Yeah, it's great. Mm, I love that Keith Morrison. Um, so some people say that perhaps his illness reminded him of his mortality and of the desire of others to advance into his place. So he was like, I got to get a move on. Um, he had his cousin uh, and adopted son Tiberius Gemellus executed. So that guy who he like deemed insane, he was like, just kill him. Um, how this was an act that mm. outraged Caligula's and Gemellus's mutual grandmother, who was known as Antonia Minor. She is said to have committed suicide, although Suetonius hints that Caligula actually, as you may have guessed, poisoned, poisoned her. her. Uh, he had his father-in-law and his brother-in-law executed as well. Uh, his uncle Claudius was spared only because Caligula preferred to keep him as a laughing stock. He was like, this old fool is such a dummy. Let's keep him around so we can make well, fun of him. He was started every speech with, well, I, Claudius. <laughs> exactly. So they just laughed and laughed yeah. at that. Like, what a doof. Turns out he uh, managed to, like, keep his successor around. So there's that. Um, his favorite sister, more on that later. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, Julia wink. Drusilla. Favorite. Yeah. Winky wink. Wink. Uh, died in 38 of a fever. Uh, his other two sisters, Lavilla and Agrippina the Younger, were exiled. Um, he, when his favorite sister, favorite sister, <laughs> Julia Drusilla died, he, like, lost his mind. Like, he was so grief-stricken. He, like, rendered his clothes. He was so sad. He, like, traveled to Germany and, like, like hung out in a hut somewhere. Like, he was super sad. And the reason, like, it was his favorite sister. He was very close to her. But people said it was because they were doing it. Yeah. That he had an incestuous relationship with her. And so that's why he was so sad when she died. Because they had an untoward and taboo Mm. relationship. More on that later. Um, He hated being the grandson of Agrippa and slandered Augustus by repeating a falsehood that his mother was actually conceived as the result of an incestuous relationship between Augustus and his daughter, Julia the Elder. So he actually hated the fact that he was part of this family that was so wealthy and powerful, which is very interesting. Yeah. 
So according to Cassius Dio, a financial crisis emerged in 39. Caligula's political payments for support, generosity, and extravagance had exhausted the state's treasury. Mm -hmm. Yep. So ancient historians state that Caligula began falsely accusing, fining, and even killing individuals for the purpose of seizing their estates. So he ran out of money, so he started, like, desperately trying to recoup all of the cash that he had spilled to, like, make people love him. Um, historians describe a number of Caligula's other desperate measures. So to gain funds, Caligula asked the public to lend the state money. He was like, <laughs> pay us. Money, please. He levied taxes on lawsuits, weddings, and prostitution. Uh, Caligula began auctioning the lives of the gladiators at shows. Ooh. Yep. Uh, wills that left items to Tiberius were reinterpreted to leave the items instead to Caligula. Mm-hmm. Uh, centurions who had a acquired property by plunder were forced to turn over the spoils to the state. So that made some people pissed off. Um, A brief famine of unknown extent occurred, perhaps caused by this financial crisis. But Suetonius claims it resulted from Caligula's seizure of public carriages. Uh, According to Seneca, grain imports were disrupted because Caligula repurposed grain boats for a pontoon bridge. (laughs) And we'll talk about that. Um, so despite financial difficulties, Caligula embarked on a number of construction projects during his reign. Uh, some were from the public good, but uh, most of them were for himself. Mm. So for an example, he built a large racetrack known as the Circus of Gaius and Nero and had an Egyptian obelisk, now known as the Vatican obelisk, transported by sea and erected in the middle of Rome. Uh, in 39, he performed a spectacular stunt. Yes. Uh, By ordering a temporary floating bridge to be built using ships as pontoons, as I mentioned before, stretching for over two miles from the resort of Baye to the neighboring port of Potioli. He said that the bridge was to rival the Persian king Xerxes' pontoon bridge crossing of the Hellespont. Caligula, who could not swim, then proceeded to ride his favorite horse, Incitatus, across, wearing the breastplate of Alexander the Great. This act was in defiance of a prediction by Tiberius's soothsayer, Thrasyllus of Mendes, that Caligula had, quote, no more chance of becoming emperor than of riding a horse across the Bay of Baye. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So he put on Alexander the Great's uh, chest piece and was like, I'm going to show you. I'm going to ride my fevy horse. So he took everybody's <laughs> boats yes. and flipped them upside down yep. and... Tied him together for yep. two miles across yep. a river mm-hmm. so that he could ride a horse across yeah. it. So he could prove some old blind soothsayer wrong. So he's a spoiled brat to begin with. He's a real bambino, this guy. So Caligula also had two large ships constructed for himself, which were actually these two ships were recovered from the bottom of Lake Nemi around 1930. Oh. So, and they ended up in... Um, uh, a museum they were like reconstructed and put in a museum mm-hmm. but they were ultimately destroyed in world war ii to bombing uh, um but there are parts of it left and also um uh models mm-hmm. that the museum had constructed afterwards uh so you can see them they're huge uh the ships were actually among the largest vessels in the ancient world Uh, The smaller ship was designed as a temple dedicated to Diana, and the larger ship was essentially an elaborate floating palace with marble floors and plumbing. Yeah, they're they're huge, and there's like drawings, like contemporary drawings of it, and it was like just it was like a huge garden, basically, like a a, an enormous garden with a pool and shit that could float away. Yes, yeah. 
as I mentioned before, they burned in 1944 after an attack in the Second World War. Um, almost nothing remains of their hulls, though many archaeological treasures remain intact in the museum at Lake Nemi and in the Museo Nazionale Romano, which is uh, the Palazzo Massimo at Rome. Uh, yeah, you got to pinch your fingers together. Um, so uh, because of all of this and because they just didn't like them, relations between Caligula and the Roman Senate weren't great. Sure. Um, he was getting more and more power hungry and ruthless, and there was substantial faction of Roman elite who desired the end of the empire and the return of the Roman Republic. So a quick history of the political changes of Rome in these early days and what these terms mean. Mm-hmm. The Republic of Rome was the era of classical Roman civilization traditionally dated to 509 BC and ending in 27 BC with the establishment of the Roman Empire with Augustus. It was during this period that Rome's control expanded from the city's immediate surroundings to control over the entire Mediterranean world. So the Roman Republic expanded Rome to an incredible size. Right. Um, its political organization was strongly influenced by the Greek city-states of Magna Graecia, which collective and annual um, magistracies overseen by a Senate. And the Senate actually ended up surviving the political change to an empire. Those Senate mm-hmm. survived. The top magistrates were the two councils who had an extensive range of executive, legislative, judicial, military, and religious powers. While there were elections every year, the Republic was not a democracy, but an oligarchy as a small number of powerful families monopolized the main magistracies. So essentially, the growth of Rome created this crisis of the Roman Republic. The The growth of Rome was too fast and too big to allow for this kind of like oligarchy to keep control because there was too much infighting and everything. So the Roman Republic essentially collapsed. Yeah. And that led to power being concentrated to an emperor who was supported and advised by the Senate and the remaining constitutional machinery was left over from the Republic. So they were all like, there's too many people involved in this. We need to find one guy who's going to run us all. So this leads to the Pax Romana, which I'm sure you've heard of. It's basically the 200 years of peace beginning with Augustus's rule. And during this period, the cohesion of the empire was furthered by a degree of social stability and economic prosperity that Rome had never before experienced. Sounds great. It was great. Um, also, uprisings in the provinces, the extended places, were infrequent, but put down mercilessly and swiftly when they occurred. So... Yikes. Pax Romana was Pax for only a certain kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 40, Caligula expanded the Roman Empire into Mauritania and made a significant attempt at expanding into Britannia. Okay. Um, the conquest of Britannia was later achieved during the reign of his successor, Claudius. Uh, but expanding into Mauritania basically closed the loop of the surrounding territories of the Mediterranean Sea. So mm-hmm. all of the land masses around the Mediterranean sea, sea with the acquisition of Mauritania were all now Roman. Yeah. Um, so just some fun flavor <laughs> um, Caligula decided he was a god so uh, oh. yeah, yeah just a thing oh. so when several client kings so kings from like differing parts uh, came to Rome to pay their respects to him and argued about their nobility of descent they were like well I'm descended from this guy and I'm descended from this guy he allegedly cried out the Homeric line let there be one lord one king, meaning himself. Wow. Uh, in 40, Caligula began implementing very controversial policies that introduced religion into his political role, which okay. was not done before. Hmm. Caligula began appearing in public dressed as various gods and demigods, such as Hercules, Mercury, Venus, and Apollo. Reportedly, he began referring <laughs> to himself as a god when meeting with politicians, and he was referred to as Jupiter on occasion in public documents. 
Huh. Yeah. So that's cool. Um, a sacred precinct was set apart for his worship at Miletus in the province of Asia, and two temples were erected for worship of him in Rome. Uh, the temple of Castor and Pollux on the Forum was linked directly to the imperial residence on the Palatine and dedicated to Caligula so he could walk there over everybody else on like a footbridge. It's kind of a real thing for... Yeah, walking over things. Yeah. Um, he would appear there on occasion and present himself as a god to the public. Like, here I am. I am your god. Naturally. Uh, Caligula had the heads removed from various statues of gods located across Rome and replaced them with his own head. <laughs> uh, oh, I love it. Yeah, it's great. Uh, it is said that he wished to be worshipped as Neos Helios, or the new sun. Indeed, he was represented as a sun god on Egyptian coins. So that's fun. Um, just as an aside... His religious policy was a departure from that of his predecessors. According to Cassius Dio, living emperors could be worshipped as divine in the East, and dead emperors could be worshipped as divine in Rome. Sort of like being canonized, right? All right. So Augustus had the public worship his spirit on occasion, but Dio describes this as an extreme act that emperors generally shied away from. Mm -hmm. Um, Caligula took things a step further and had those in Rome, including senators, worship him as a tangible living god. So, let's talk about how wild his shit was. So, Philo of Alexandria and Seneca the Younger, contemporaries of Caligula, describe him as an insane emperor who was self-absorbed, short-tempered, killed on a whim, and indulged in too much spending and sex. He is accused of sleeping with other men's wives and bragging about it, killing for mere amusement, deliberately wasting money on his bridge, causing starvation, and wanting a statue of himself in the Temple of Jerusalem for his worship. (laughs) Uh, he deliberately spent money on this bridge. Yeah. <laughs> who was like, you know what? Make sure you add this to this yeah. list of grievances <laughs> I have against him. Yeah. Like yeah. he slept with my wife and yeah. like stole my family's money. But also. Yeah. Philo of Alexandria was like, also put down that bridge, right down the bridge. Don't forget it. That's for posterity. Um, once at some games at which he was presiding, uh, he was said to have ordered his guards to throw an entire section of the audience into the arena during the intermission to be eaten by the wild beasts because there were no prisoners to be used and he was bored. He's out of prisoners. So he was like, see all those guys from blue shirt row, over row before stand up. <laughs> yep. And stand then up, you too could win a chance <laughs> to die by oh my being God. eaten by lions. Yep. Um, so while repeating the earlier stories, the later sources of Suetonius and Cassius Dio provided additional tales of insanity. So here we go. They accuse Caligula of incest with his sisters, as I mentioned before, um, and says that he prostituted them to other men as well. Uh, they state that he sent troops on illogical military exercises, turned the palace into a brothel, and most famously planned or promised to make his horse, Incitatus, a consul and actually appointed him a priest. So... <laughs> So his horse was in charge? His horse was in charge of actually several people. Okay. Um, However, I should mention, the validity of these accounts is debatable. In Roman political culture, insanity and sexual perversity was often presented hand-in-hand with poor government. So his predecessor, who was truly hated, Tiberius, was said to have kept underage boys around in his villa, who he called his little fishies and would have them swim between his thighs in his pool and nibble on his genitals. Lauren. And here I wrote, I hear, you know, here I wrote, I wrote, ew, in big letters. Lauren. I, I didn't, this isn't, I didn't make this up. Mary Beard 
talked about this in the documentary, and I am here for information. I told you this episode was rated X for extreme. All surviving sources except Pliny the Elder characterize Caligula as insane. Uh, however, it is not known whether they are speaking figuratively or literally. Additionally, given Caligula's unpopularity among their surviving sources, it is difficult to separate fact from fiction. Mm-hmm. It seemed uh, accusing a leader of incest, insanity, and sexual perversity seemed to be like the Roman thing to do. Like, okay. oh, you hear this guy? He's banging his sister. Like, he's a real dick. So, like, <laughs> that would seem to be like the thing to okay. totally discredit someone. Mm-hmm. Um. Recent sources are divided in attempting to ascribe a medical reason for his behavior, citing as possibilities encephalitis, epilepsy, or meningitis. Uh, The question of whether or not Caligula was insane, especially after his illness in the early reign that I mentioned before, it remains unanswered as it would be. Uh, Philo, Josephus, and Seneca state that Caligula was insane, but describe this madness as a personality trait that came through experience. (laughs) Um, Seneca states that Caligula became arrogant, angry, and insulting once he became emperor and uses his personality flaws as examples his readers can learn from. According to Josephus, power made Caligula incredibly conceited and led him to think he was a god, as we saw. And Philo reports that Caligula became ruthless after nearly dying of an illness in the eighth month of his reign. And another historian, Juvenal, reports that he was given a magic potion that drove him insane. So That's probably that one. It's probably that one. It's probably that one. Um, Suetonius said that Caligula suffered from falling sickness or epilepsy when he was young. Hmm. Modern historians have theorized that Caligula lived with a daily fear of seizures. And despite swimming being a part of imperial education anyway, Caligula could not swim. So that's an idea that they think that he suffered from true epilepsy because he was never allowed to learn how to swim. Um, Caligula reportedly talked to the full moon um, and apparently epilepsy was long associated with the moon. That's like another like point of fact, I guess, I guess Suetonius was like, he talked to the moon, definitely epilepsy, not a werewolf. Signs he delivered. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Not a werewolf, but definitely epileptic. Um, So how he looked. Suetonius describes Caligula as sickly looking, skinny and pale. Quote, he was tall, very pale, ill-shaped, his neck and legs very slender. Ill-shaped? Ill-shaped, like a weird shape. Um, His eyes and temples hollow, his brows broad and knit, his hair thin, and the crown of his head bald. The other parts of his body were much covered with hair. He was crazy both in body and mind, being subject, when a boy, to the falling sickness. But they liked him for a while. They did, but not for very long. He only reigned for four years. Yeah, this is crazy. Okay. Um, When he arrived at the age of manhood, he endured fatigue tolerably well. Occasionally, he was liable to faintness, during which he remained incapable of any effort. Based on scientific reconstructions of his official painted busts, Caligula had brown hair, brown eyes, and fair skin. So he looked like me. You're not ill-shaped. No, I'm not ill-shaped. Covered in hair. Well, well. mm. (laughs) (laughs) No, I am... Half Italian. Um, So uh, some modern historians think that Caligula suffered from hyperthyroidism, and this diagnosis is mainly attributed to Caligula's irritability and his, quote, stare, as described by Pliny the Elder. Because hyperthyroidism causes your eyeballs to kind of like bulge out of your skull. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, these are just, they're just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks, you know? So how he died. The situation of the Senate and Caligula and all this stuff had escalated when in 40 
the year 40, Caligula announced to the Senate that he planned to leave Rome permanently and to move to Alexandria in Egypt, where he hoped to be worshipped as a living god. Okay. Uh, well, they liked him there. They Sure. They That was one of the last places that he like, that liked him. Um, the prospect of Rome losing its emperor and thus its political power was the final straw for a lot of people. Such a move would have left both the Senate and the Praetorian Guard powerless to stop Caligula's repression and debauchery. So with this in mind, the head of the Praetorian Guard, Cassius Caiera, convinced his fellow conspirators, who included Marcus Vinicius and Lucius Annius Vincianius, to put their plot into action quickly. According to Josephus, Caria had political motivations for the assassination. Suetonius sees the motive in Caligula calling Chiera derogatory names. Caligula considered Chiera effeminate because of a weak voice and for not being firm with tax collection. Caligula would often mock him with names like Priapus. Uh, Priapus was a minor fertility god in Roman mythology who is often depicted with an enormous erect penis. And I don't know why that would be considered like a bad thing, I guess, but whatever. And he also called him Venus, like, oh, you're a girl. Yes. Yeah. Stupid. He wasn't a clever person. Anyway, on January 22nd in 41, uh, Cassius Caiera and other guardsmen accosted Caligula as he addressed an acting troupe of young men beneath the palace during a series of games and dramatics being held for the divine Augustus. Details recording on the events vary somewhat from a source to source, but they agree that Caiera stabbed Caligula first in the neck, followed by a number of conspirators. Suetonius records that Caligula's death resembled that of Julius Caesar and that they were both stabbed 30 times. Uh, by the time Caligula's loyal Germanic guard responded, the emperor was already dead. Uh, he was 28. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like murder on the Orient Express. Yeah. Like there Everybody were so many it. of them. Well, uh, their Germanic guard, stricken with grief and rage, responded with a rampaging attack on the assassins, conspirators, and innocent bystanders oh, alike. No. Uh, the Senate attempted to use Caligula's death as an opportunity to restore the Republic, and Caiera tried to persuade the military to support the Senate. Uh, the military, though, remained loyal to the idea of imperial monarchy. They're like, we've got a good thing going. We're sticking mm -hmm. with an emperor. Uh, the grieving Roman people assembled and demanded that Caligula's murders be brought to justice. Because he was still their bambino, you know? Um, uncomfortable with lingering imperial support, the assassins sought out and killed Caligula's wife, Caesonia, and killed their young daughter, Julia Drusilla, by smashing her head against a wall. Uh, they were unable to reach Caligula's uncle, Claudius. After a soldier, Gratus, found Claudius hiding behind a palace curtain, he was spirited out of the city by a sympathetic faction of the Praetorian Guard to their nearby camp. I, Claudius. I, Claudius. Demand to be <laughs> to spirited away. city. Um, Claudius, of course, be I, Claudius, of course, became emperor after procuring the support of the Praetorian Guard, and he ordered the execution of Caiera and of any other known conspirators involved in the death of Caligula. According to Suetonius, Caligula's body was placed under turf until it was burned and entombed by his sisters. He was buried within the mausoleum of Augustus in 410 during the sack of Rome. The ashes in the tomb were scattered. And that is the story of Bootykins, Little Boots. I don't think I knew anything about him neither did i i looked it up the documentary is very good it's only an hour it's on britbox if you're interested or it's a i think it's an itv thing but i could be wrong about that um in the uk uh but uh mary beard is very fascinating if you're a muse museum person ignore the fact that she loves to touch on stuff um but she's got a great sense of humor and a cool sense of style and uh yeah that was caligula considered like the worst man ever until nero fiddled while rome burned <laughs> Right, I guess. 
So when we um, use the term Caligula today, mm-hmm. it's generally used as like how somebody that's someone who hedonistic. is hedonistic and disgusting and it engages in taboo behavior okay. and that kind of thing. So um, another cool thing about uh, ancient Roman uh, statuary, and mm-hmm. I may have mentioned this on the on the, top, on the uh, podcast before, but when we see statuary from Greece and Rome, it's always white because uh-huh. it's made from marble. But in fact, which is so on brand for the Italians, I could not even tell you. They were actually painted vivid colors. Mm-hmm. They were painted like flesh tones with like brown eyes and they painted their hair and they painted their clothes. So ancient statuary was actually like super garish. Yeah. Um, but because we see it like, you know, thousands of years later, uh, it's like white. Mm-hmm. So it's it's seen as like the idea of like a classical statuary is actually not true because if you really wanted to go accurately, it would be painted like these bright matte colors. Like you're in Vegas. Like you're in Vegas. Yes. Which again, is so Italian. It's not even funny. Awesome. So. Bravo. Oh, thank you very much. So my quiz today is called Little Boots, a quiz on shoes and boots. Question number one. Speaking of ancient Rome, this kind of shoe was worn back then, although they weren't really all that popular until at least the 16th century in Europe. It's composed of a closed toe shape with a stubbornly open heel, and were traditionally not worn out of doors. What is this type of shoe called? Question number two. This kind of boot for men and women were hugely popular during the mod 60s, especially amongst the very fashionable London set, which is probably how they got their name. They are close-fitting, ankle-high boots with an elastic side panel and date back to the Victorian era. A version of the boots with a higher heel were made specifically for the Beatles and served to increase the boots' popularity even more. What is this swingin' 60s boot? Question number three. The only museum in North America dedicated solely to the history of footwear is the Bata Shoe Museum, begun by shoe collector and businesswoman Sonia Bata in the 1940s. In what major North American city is the Bata Shoe Museum? Here's a hint. It's sometimes called The Six, and we could get there pretty easily from here. Question number four. It seems that not too long ago, every crunchy hippie and weirdo runner was wearing these ugly-ass quote-unquote shoes, which were basically rubber toe socks. What is the name of these hideous barefoot shoes? Question number five. True or false, in the strictest traditional sense, a cobbler not only repairs shoes, but makes new leather shoes from as well. Question number six. This cutesy leather shoe was popular among the young in the mid-20th century and was a part of stereotypical schoolgirl uniforms in the 1940s. Famous people depicted in these shoes include Elvis Presley in Jailhouse Rock, Bert from Sesame Street, and the Peanuts character Lucy Van Pelt. What is the name of this horsey shoe? Question number seven. School shopping as a kid always involved this foot measuring device at the shoe store, which was invented in Syracuse, New York by an entrepreneur and SU alumnus who christened the device with his name. What is this measuring instrument's name? Question number eight. Many museums have examples of this kind of Chinese shoe, which was worn by Chinese women who had bound feet. They were delicately constructed from cotton or silk and small enough to fit in the palm of a hand. Some designs had heels or wedge-shaped soles. 
They were made in different styles and colors and were typically ornately decorated with embroidered designs of animals or flowers that can continue onto the sole of the shoe. What is the floral name of these tiny, torturous shoes? Question number nine. A Chopin is a type of woman's platform shoe that was popular in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. Chopins were usually used as a patent, clog, or overshoe to protect the shoes and dress from mud and street soil. They were especially popular among the courtesan and patrician set in this carnival-loving, wet European city. Name it. Question number 10. And just for fun, I'm going to name four real-ass shoe styles, and you're going to tell me if they're real or if I made them up. Number one, creepers. Number two, blurps. Number three, winkle pickers. Number four, pampooties. I'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with your answers. you made up everything in question 10 <laughs> you can say that yeah i mean I maybe will. i did i you will know. say that doubling down <laughs> question number one all right speaking of ancient rome this kind of shoe was worn back then although they weren't really all that popular until at least the 16th century in europe it's composed of a closed toe shape with a stubbornly open heel and were traditionally not worn out of doors what is this type of shoe called a mule it is a mule so the mule's etymology comes from ancient Rome. In ancient Rome, the phrase mulius calcius, which means red shoe, was used to describe the red or purple shoes worn by the three Roman senators and later higher magistrates. In 16th century Europe and France, the Latin root word mule was used to refer to both backless shoes and slippers. So this style of shoe has a storied history, and when uh, Comtesse de Lon, the risque society beauty, wore a soft red pair of mules to church in 1694, daringly peeping from beneath her richly embellished skirt, it paved the way for the style. They're very popular right now, mules. Um, I guess if I thought about like Roman shoes, I would only think of like sandals. Yeah, of course. I didn't realize they had closed-toed shoes. They did have closed-toed shoes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, lots of different kinds of shoes. Mm. It's the Romans. The Italians, they're known for their beautiful shoemaking oh, and true. handbags. And their gold-gilded everything. Um, question number two. This kind of boot for men and women were hugely popular during the mod 60s, especially among the very fashionable London set, which is probably how they got their name. They are close-fitting, ankle-high boots with an elastic side panel and dates back to the Victorian era. A version of the boots with a higher heel were made specifically for the Beatles and served to increase the boots' popularity even more. What is this swinging 60s boot? Is it a 
Chelsea boot? It is a Chelsea boot. Beetle boots, as they became known, had a higher Cuban heel. A Cuban mm-hmm. heel is just a wide, flat heel. Okay. Uh, also, Queen Victoria is said to have worn them every day. Really? Yeah. I guess I didn't realize they were that old. Yeah. Um, when, um, like, elastic was started to become, like, rubber became uh-huh. a thing, um, they made them for riding, specifically. Oh. So it was an alternative to wearing, like, a high riding boot. Neat. Yeah. So she wore them every day because she loved to ride. She loved horses. Uh, question number three. The only museum in North America dedicated solely to the history of footwear is the Bata Shoe Museum, begun by shoe collector and businesswoman Sonia Bata in the 1940s. In what major North American city is the Bata Shoe Museum? Here's a hint. It's sometimes called the Six, and we could get there pretty easily from here. I think thanks to Drake, I know that the Six is Toronto. Toronto, yep. Uh, the Bata Shoe Museum collects, researches, preserves, and exhibits footwear from around the world. It offers four exhibitions, three of which are time-limited, lectures, performances, and family events. The collection contains over 13,500 items from throughout history as well as the present. The museum is home to the world's largest and most comprehensive collection of shoes and footwear-related artifacts. Isn't that lovely? Interesting. It is interesting. I have been meaning to go there. I met the former curator of the Bada Shoe Museum, and he was a lovely person. Um, he started a fashion museum uh, just outside of Toronto, in a suburb of Toronto, and I've been meaning to go up there. But yeah, it seems like a cool place. I would see it. When you say Bada Shoe, it makes me think of pastry. Yes. It sounds like a pastry, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. But it's just Bada, B-A-T-A, mm-hmm. shoe, like mm-hmm. the footwear, like this quiz. Uh, question number four. It seems that not that long ago, every crunchy hippie and weirdo runner were wearing these ugly ass shoes, which were basically rubber toe socks. What is the name of these hideous barefoot shoes? I was just trying to think about these the other day. Um, I feel like the brand name is like Vibram. Okay. Or something. I'll, I I mean, I'll give it to Will you. Will you take that? I'll take that. They're called the Vibram Five Fingers. Five Fingers. <laughs> I had a friend in grad school who would wear them all the time, and I wanted to die. They were meant for, like, running Running, only. climbing. They're yeah. rich. So I guess I could see if you were, like, rock climbing that you would want something like that. I guess. I mean, okay, so they were originally marketed as more natural alternative for different outdoor activities, such as sailing, kayaking, canoeing, and as a camp or an after-hike shoe. Um, the footwear is meant to replicate being barefoot and has a thin, flexible sole that is contoured to the shape of the human foot, uh, um, including <laughs> visible individual sections for the toes. <laughs> 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 They're just so gross looking. So apparently they so they became very popular for barefoot runners. Okay. So that's like a whole like weirdo subsection of running who that they the claim is that by running barefoot, you are running at a more biologically natural state okay. than if you were wearing shoes that affects your gait and that kind of thing. Right. So the company actually ended up getting sued because they made these false health claims yeah. that said that by running in our shoes, it can make your feet stronger and therefore avoid like injury and you're you're just a healthier runner by wearing our shoes so they eventually settled this lawsuit um and set aside 3.75 million to pay refunds of up to 94 dollars to anyone who had purchased the product since march 21st 2009 um the vibram company is still making them although they've expanded to include regular looking sneakers and boots thankfully speaking of shoe companies getting sued do you remember when sketchers had those like 
push-up shoes or the the curvy curvy shoe the walkers told you that your butt was gonna get better or something yes like it was supposed to make you skinny i was literally just talking to steve about that i was like do you remember those stupid curved he doesn't remember that he doesn't remember i don't know why it was was because he was next to me and i didn't have anybody else to talk to i should have just texted you no, like those weird curvy, <laughs> yeah. and then they got sued too because yeah. people were like falling off of them. Yeah, and their butts weren't getting any better. No, because you weren't going to lose 50 pounds just by like walking around the mall in, in a, like a curvy curvy platform so sneaker. So stupid. I remember seeing people walking around with those be like, what's wrong with you? Whatever. You're like six inches taller than us, I That's guess. true. And I guess, I don't know, had a better butt, whatever. <laughs> so stupid. All right, question number five. True or false? In the strictest traditional sense, a cobbler not only repairs shoes, but makes new leather shoes as well. I'll say true. It's false. Ah! That's called a cord waner. <laughs> so the term the terms cord waner and cobbler have often been considered not interchangeable, according to a tradition in Britain that restricted cobblers to just repairing shoes. Okay. In this usage, a cord waner is someone who makes new shoes using new leather, whereas a cobbler is someone who repairs shoes only. Okay. In the historic London guild system, the cobblers and cord waners were separate guilds, and the cobblers were forbidden from working in new leather. So they could, for all intents and purposes, make a new shoe using old leather, but they could not use new leather. Semantics. I know, it was like really dumb. But, you know, guild systems were crazy. Uh, Question number six. This cutesy leather shoe was popular amongst the young in the mid-20th century and was a part of stereotypical schoolgirl uniforms in the 1940s. Famous people depicted in these shoes include Elvis Presley in Jailhouse Rock, Bert from Sesame Street, and the Peanuts character, Lucy Van Pelt. What is the name of this horsey shoe? A saddle shoe. It is a saddle shoe. Um, The name, just so you know, comes from the contrasting saddle-shaped decorative panel placed midfoot. I think in when I was in like Catholic school for two years. Oh, yeah. We had to wear saddle saddle shoes. shoes. That makes sense. Uh, Question number seven. School shopping as a kid always involved this foot measuring device at the shoe store, which was invented in Syracuse, New York by an entrepreneur and SU alumnus who christened the device with his name. What is this measuring instrument's name? It's called a Brannock device. It is a Brannock device. So the son of a shoe industry entrepreneur... Uh, Charles F. Brannock attended Syracuse University when he was a member of Delta Kappa Epsilon Fraternity. Uh, Brannock spent two years developing a simple means of measuring the length, width, and arch length of the human foot. The Brannock Device Company was headquartered in Syracuse until shortly after his death, and Salvatore Leonardi purchased the company from the Brannock Estate in 1993 and moved manufacturing to a small factory in Liverpool, New York, which is just north of Syracuse. Um, the company continues to manufacture several models of the device for determining the shoe sizes of men, women, and children, and they also produce specialized models for fitting other types of footwear. And on May 31st, 2018, the Syracuse Minor League Baseball team had a one-night promotion and rebranded themselves as the Syracuse Devices in honor of the Brannock device. Oh, did you did you buy a special edition jersey? You know what? For I that? didn't. I had moved out. I was here by then. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I really missed out Big on bestseller. Mm-hmm. Syracuse devices devices like why not the syracuse brannocks or the syracuse brannock devices <laughs> like they didn't have enough room on the shirts i don't know it's weird anyway uh question number eight many museums have examples of this kind of chinese shoe which were worn by chinese women who had bound feet they were delicately constructed from cotton or silk and small enough to fit in the palm of a hand uh what is the floral name of these tiny torturous shoes 
I don't have a single idea. Okay. Um, I'm just going to pick a flower. Great. That seems to be popular in Eastern culture. Great. And call and say a lotus. It is. It is a lotus shoe. What? Good job. Good job. I have... I've never heard of this. Though. Yeah. Um, they're called such because they resemble the shape of a lotus bud. Okay. And we have uh, actually a pair of lotus shoes um, in our Asian galleries at the mag. Uh-huh. Um, they're we. They're like, they're like three inches across. They're really They tiny. were not meant for walking on, no, right? No. And like the, the, bound feet thing is very, it's very fraught. Yes. It's awful. I mean, we, uh, elite women were having their feet bound. I shouldn't say were having, like they were being forced to do this up until like pretty recently, mm-hmm. like the early 20th century, there was still like a, a tradition of binding feet. Yeah. And it just, it hobbles these women. Like they, they can't walk on their own. They can't like get anywhere. They're constantly in pain. And it was meant to be that way, yeah. right? Like they were supposed to be dependent on the men in their lives to like get them around and that kind of, and servants. Um, so it's crazy. I remember I watched a documentary way back when, and the only thing I can remember is one of like the last women who still had bound feet. It was like this very elderly woman. And the last shot is of her like struggling to walk across a garden. She's got like two canes and she's just kind of like, Oh, oh it's awful. So we will not be doing an episode on, foot binding uh sorry guys anyway question number nine a chopin is a type of women's platform shoe that was popular in the 15th 16th and 17th centuries chopins were originally used as a patent clog or overshoe to protect the shoes and dress from mud and street soil they were especially popular among the courtesan and patrician set in this carnival loving wet european city name it Carnival loving wet European city. Mm-hmm. The people who love the carnival. Yep. And are wet in <laughs> Europe. Oh, I gosh. Mean, don't think too much A about Chopin. that. Chopin. Yeah. Chopin. Carnival. <laughs> I don't know. I'll say Amsterdam. No, it's uh, it's Venice. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So Chopin were uh, popularly worn in Venice by both courtesans and patrician women from between 1400 to 1700. Um, In Italian, uh, it is known as, sorry, uh, Zoccoli. So they were known as Zoccoli in, in Venice. So besides their practical use of like literally raising the woman oh, above that like makes dirt sense. and garbage. Yeah. yeah. Um, the height of the Chopin became a symbolic reference to the cultural and so- social standing of the wearer. So the higher, like, you know, the higher the hair, the closer to God. Yeah. The higher the Chopin, the higher the status of the wearer. Oh. Um, high Chopins allowed a woman to tower over others. So you could literally sure. like see her over everybody else. And during the Renaissance, Chopins became an article of women's fashion and were made increasingly taller. And some extant examples are over 20 inches high or 50 centimeters. Until you were like on stilts. Yeah, or basically on stilts. Um, there were a lot of like political cartoons, like like jokey mm-hmm. parodies that had women like l- like eight and a half feet tall in these. Or like there were these um, great little illustrations, Italian illustrations, where there'd be like a panel. It was kind of like a, 
like a, a peekaboo book Hold kind up. of yeah. thing where like you would see her like her skirt and you could pick up her skirt and you would see like her super tall Chopin and like her little bloomers or whatever. Um, so it was kind of funny. But uh, in 1430, the height of Chopin's were limited by Venetian law to three inches, but this regulation was widely ignored. Uh, yeah. Uh, the Italians, and this is something having to do with like uh, COVID-19, there is an Italian term called furbizia, which basically means this kind of like secret joy that Italians get from like getting around laws, like being kind of sneaky, sneaky. <laughs> and when Italy got locked down, there were a lot of people saying like, oh, well, the Italians are furbizia. Like they're going to, they're going to like sneak out of, out of the house and like go and do stuff. But as it turned out, there weren't as many people who were like as willing to kind of get around yeah. the laws because they were afraid. Um, so that's like a fun little term, furbizia. Uh, also, Chopin, like the social, political, like cultural thing around Chopin's is so, like I could do an entire episode on Chopin's. It's fascinating. I went to um, historic costume um, a conference several years ago, mm-hmm. and all the talks were super, super boring. Uh, because it was all about like corsets and like mm, aprons and garbage. And then one woman did a thing on Chopin's and I like, I wrote down every word she said. I was fascinated. It's really cool. Uh. So um, I won't bore you with an entire episode on Chopin's, but just so you know, Google it. It's a cool thing. And finally, question number 10. And just for fun, I'm going to name four real ass shoe styles and you're going to tell me if they're real or if I made them up. Name them all again. Okay. Just in a row. Creepers, blurps, winkle pickers, pampooties. Okay, ready? Creepers. I, I think they're all made up. You're going to say that? You're going <laughs> to yeah. just make a blanket? I'm going all made up. Creepers, blurps, winkle pickers, pampooties. You're wrong. <laughs> creepers are also known as brothel creepers. They're a style of shoe that has thick crepe soles, often in combination with suede tops okay. suede uppers this style of footwear became fashionable in the years following world war ii and the punks revived them in the 70s they're basically like flat form sneakers okay blurps i made up um winkle pickers are real they are a style of shoe or boot worn from the 1950s onward by british rock and roll fans um the feature that gives them both the boot and the shoe their name is the very sharp and long pointed reminiscent of medieval footwear so they're like a shiny black Uh patent boot with a lot of buckles but the toe is like stiletto point sharp and it's long what are the shoes that um uh i think that they're traditionally mexican with the super long yes what are those those called i'm gonna i'll google them you'll tell me um is it like that um no they don't go as like as far as that but the, I'm going to look them up. Hold on. So those are called um, Mexican pointy boots or Traval boots. And they're basically like, <laughs> they're supposed to be funny. Like, yeah, they're ma- they're meant to they're be funny. They're for like a, like a kind of like a costume. Yeah. They? So it's, it's a, it's for men who are involved in the musica Traval subculture. Mm-hmm. So it's like a traditional. For dancing. For and, dancing and yeah. that kind of thing. And so like the longer the toe, like the funnier it is. It's just kind of a silly thing. So it's kind of like that, but like <laughs> shorter. And they're cool. They're not funny. Yeah. yeah. Like winkle pickers are cool. Whatever. 
Uh, and Pampooties are real. Oh. They, are, they are a rawhide shoe, which were formerly made and worn on the Aran Islands of County Galway in Ireland. Um, they are formed of a single piece of untanned hide folded around the foot and stitched with twine or a leather strap. So they're kind of boring looking, but they're called Pampooties. Um, so that is my... <laughs> This is my topic and quiz on boots, little boots. We'll put a we'll put a shoe fetish. Uh, yeah, a little shoe fetish tag on that. Uh, and now for our 2020 segment, which we're running out of. I thought we was gonna it was gonna be like I the rest it was of the year go through the whole year. <laughs> yeah. So, Jerm, you might have to send us more trivia. Um, but uh, here it comes. Germ's corner. Tonight's Germ's corner top uh, trivia is poi is yucky. End of statement. Thanks, Germ. Thanks, Germ. <laughs> um, uh, thanks to you guys as well for listening. Um, please, you know, rate, review, and subscribe. <laughs> Tell a friend. Uh, thank you to everyone who has already rate, reviewed, and reviewed it, reviewed yeah. it, and subscribed it, uh, and told friends. Uh, we appreciate it. We appreciate Absolutely. you. And uh, thanks so much for listening, guys. Yeah, we'll get you next time. Bye. Goodbye.